This is VOA News. Reporting via remote, I'm Richard Green. United States President Joe Biden has confirmed a U.S. drone strike in an upscale neighborhood of Kabul killed al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri. The story from VOA's chief national correspondent, Steve Herman, in Washington. President Biden, who has been in isolation again due to a positive COVID-19 test, appeared for seven minutes on the White House Blue Room balcony Monday evening to announce that the Egyptian surgeon who succeeded Osama bin Laden had met the same fate as the al-Qaeda founder. Our intelligence community located Zawahiri earlier this year. He had moved to downtown Kabul to reunite with members of his immediate family. After carefully considering the clear and convincing evidence of his location, I authorized a precision strike that would remove him from the battlefield once and for all. The Republican vice chair of the Senate's Intelligence Committee, Marco Rubio, in a statement, said the operation is part of the ongoing commitment to hunt down all of the terrorists responsible for the September 11, 2001 attacks on the United States, as well as those who continue to pose a threat to U.S. interests. A Taliban spokesman in Kabul condemned the drone strike, saying no matter the pretext, it is a blatant violation of international principles and the Doha agreement between the United States and the Taliban. The attack, reportedly conducted by the Central Intelligence Agency, was the first in Afghanistan since the American military pulled out last year. Steve Herman, VOA News, Washington. Zawahiri was on the FBI's most wanted terrorist list and had a $25 million bounty on his head for any information that could be used to kill or capture him. Osama bin Laden was killed in Pakistan on May 20, 2011 in an operation carried out by U.S. Navy SEALs. This is VOA News. The head of the United Nations has a warning about the threat of nuclear danger. We have been extraordinarily lucky so far, but luck is not a strategy, nor is it a shield from geopolitical tensions boiling over into nuclear conflict. Today, humanity is just one misunderstanding, one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez cited the war in Ukraine and the threat of nuclear weapons to conflicts in the Mideast and Asia, Asia, two regions edging toward catastrophe. Guterres said the meeting is taking place at a time of nuclear danger not seen since the height of the Cold War. The, United, the White House is making more than $1 billion available to U.S. states to address flooding and extreme heat made worse by climate change. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris announced the grant program Monday in Miami with the head of the Federal Emergency Management Agency and other officials. Climate change has become a climate crisis. And a threat has now become a reality. The competitive grants will help communities across the nation prepare for and respond to climate-related disasters. Libyan authorities say at least nine people were killed and 76 injured after a fuel tanker truck fire and explosion. The emergency services says the incident took place in the central town of Bent Baya on Monday. It says the injured were taken to a medical center in a nearby city. The center postage posted footage, including graphic images of people at an emergency ward receiving treatment for their burns. The state-run Libyan news agency said the tanker truck overturned before catching fire and exploding. It said residents in the area rushed to collect leaked gasoline despite warnings causing the high casualty tolls. Recapping our top story, United States President Joe Biden has announced al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri was killed in a U.S. drone strike in Afghanistan. 
Biden is hailing the operation as delivering justice while expressing hope that it brings one more measure of closure to families of the victims of the September 11, 2001 attacks on the United States. The president said U.S. intelligence officials tracked al-Zawahiri to a home in downtown Kabul where he was hiding out with his family. Zawahiri was on the FBI's most wanted terrorist list and had a $25 million bounty on his head for any information that could be used to kill or capture him. You can find more on this story and all the stories we're covering at our website, voanews.com. We also have an app that you can download. Just search for VOA News. Reporting via remote, I'm Richard Green for VOA News. Today is Tuesday, August 2nd, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinadorfo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, U.S. drone strike kills Al-Qaeda leader Ahmad al-Zawahiri in Afghanistan. From hiding, he coordinated Al-Qaeda's branches and all around the world, including setting priorities for providing operational guidance, calling for his followers to attack the United States and our allies. Now, justice has been delivered. U.S. warns China against creating tensions over the visit of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan. Speaker Pelosi, if and when she goes to Taiwan, would be the highest-ranking U.S. official to have visited the country since 1997, when Newt Gingrich went there. And top climate scientists warn of worsening climate change and possible human extinction. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. President Joe Biden has confirmed that a U.S. drone strike in an upscale neighborhood of Kabul killed al-Qaeda leader Ahmad al-Zawahiri. This story from VOA's chief national correspondent Steve Herman in Washington. President Biden, who has been in isolation again due to a positive COVID-19 test, appeared for seven minutes on the White House Blue Room balcony Monday evening to announce that the Egyptian surgeon who succeeded Osama bin Laden had met the same fate as the al-Qaeda founder. Our intelligence community located Zawahiri earlier this year. He had moved to downtown Kabul to reunite with members of his immediate family. After carefully considering the clear and convincing evidence of his location, I authorized a precision strike that would remove him from the battlefield once and for all. The Republican vice chair of the Senate's Intelligence Committee, Marco Rubio, in a statement, said the operation is part of the ongoing commitment to hunt down all of the terrorists responsible for the September 11, 2001 attacks on the United States, as well as those who continue to pose a threat to U.S. interests. A Taliban spokesman in Kabul condemned the drone strike, saying no matter the pretext, it is a blatant violation of international principles and the Doha Agreement between the United States and the Taliban. The attack, reportedly conducted by the Central Intelligence Agency, was the first in Afghanistan since the American military pulled out last year. Steve Herman, VOA News, Washington. China said on Monday that its military will, quote, not sit idly by, unquote, if U.S. House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi visits Taiwan. The latest warning was issued during a Chinese foreign ministry regular briefing. Spokesperson Xiaoli Yang also said that because of Pelosi's status, 
as a quote, number three official of the U.S. government, unquote, a visit to Taiwan, which China claims as its own, would be a, quote, gross interference in China's internal affairs, unquote, and warned that it would lead to, quote, very serious developments and consequences, unquote. Pelosi was set to kick off a tour of four Asian countries on Monday in Singapore amid intense speculations that she may risk the wrath of Beijing by also visiting self-rule Taiwan. For more on the growing tensions over the trip, I spoke with VOA's congressional correspondent, Catherine Gibson. Speaker Pelosi, if and when she goes to Taiwan, would be the highest-ranking U.S. official to have visited the country since 1997, when Newt Gingrich went there. So this is a very significant trip, and we know that Speaker Pelosi may have heard from some of the military circles here in the United States, possibly even from the White House itself, that this trip is a very sensitive trip and that she may not want to be taking it. It does appear by all accounts that she is going to be in Taiwan and that she is pressing forward on that. Speaker Pelosi, it's very hard to bully her. With the sensitivity of this trip and the tensions surrounding it, what kind of reception is she likely to receive in Taiwan? Since she is the highest ranking U.S. official to visit in several decades, she is likely to get a very good reception. Her trip has not yet been officially confirmed by her office, but it has been confirmed on the Taiwanese side, according to media reports. From what we understand, this is going to be a very quick trip. She will probably be meeting with Taiwanese officials late Tuesday or early Wednesday, and then moving on with the rest of her congressional delegation to continue that trip throughout Asia. So even though it will be a very short trip, it will be very symbolically important. There were concerns earlier that the president, based on advice of military authorities, might talk the speaker out of going to this trip. What are the concerns of the administration? Or she's just going on that trip against the advice of the administration? The U.S. government is going to be very careful in a diplomatically sensitive situation like this to not appear at odds with each other. And often when it comes to diplomacy, you can have a bit of a carrot and a stick approach where you have one side working to encourage the Taiwanese authorities. Well, President Biden works with Chinese President Xi. We know that he had a call with him recently where they did not directly address Speaker Pelosi's trip, but that President Biden reiterated that they want to work together. Well, President Xi said that there could be an opportunity for some consequences if the U.S. were to get involved in this situation. So there's a lot of diplomatic language to parse here. And I think we need to be careful about saying that the U.S. government is at odds with each other. There's a lot of negotiating behind closed doors. And really, when we look at the Chinese response, well, we do know that they have moved ships into the area as a precaution, as a show of strength to the U.S. They have also not set up their high-level threats yet. That's VOA's congressional correspondent Catherine Gibson speaking with me from Washington, D.C. Amid reports House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is to visit Taiwan this week, the White House is warning China not to escalate what it calls, quote, irresponsible rhetoric, unquote, to a military show of force. Again, details from VOA's chief national correspondent Steve Herman in Washington. 
While declining to confirm how Speaker Nancy Pelosi will travel to Taiwan, which China claims is a rogue province, White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby told reporters on Monday that officials in Beijing are overreacting to the possible visit by the high-ranking U.S. politician. There's certainly no reason for this to come to blows. There's certainly no reason for this to, to escalate. Kirby said the Chinese, who have objected strenuously to any Taiwan visit by Pelosi, warning of resolute and strong measures if she does make the trip, appear to be positioning themselves to take action. These potential steps from China could include military provocations, such as firing missiles in the Taiwan Strait or around Taiwan, operations that break historical norms, such as large-scale air entry into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in New York said if China tries to create some kind of crisis or otherwise escalates tensions, that would be entirely on Beijing. Steve Herman, VOA News, Washington. Ukraine has finally begun shipping grain out of its Black Sea ports again this month after months of blockade. It's part of a safe passage agreement with Russia, which observers hope will ease global food shortages. A young engineer on the vessel tells Reuters, that the feeling is, quote, indescribable, unquote. Matthew Lauer turned off Reuters reports. The first cargo vessel to leave Ukraine carrying a grain shipment has finally sailed from the Black Sea port of Odessa after being blockaded there since the Russian invasion began five months ago. Ukraine's government is calling it a day of relief. Kremlin has called the Rizzoni's departure very positive news. Russia and Ukraine make up nearly a third of the world's grain exports. And the conflict has worsened the global cost of living crisis, particularly for countries threatened by food shortages and hunger. A young engineer named Abdullah Jendi is aboard the vessel, which is bound for Lebanon. He's been sharing these images with Reuters. He says it's an indescribable feeling to be going back home, like being freed from detention after a long time. Every day, he says, the alarm would go off in the port, and he and his crew would be afraid they might accidentally be hit in an attack. He's still scared of explosive mines left in these waters. He thinks it could take the ship two or three hours to get out of the area safely. The shipment is the result of the safe passage agreement made between Russia and Ukraine's government last month. Monday's grain shipments come a day after a Ukrainian grain tycoon and his wife were killed in their home by Russian strikes, according to the local governor. Video released by emergency services is said to show the aftermath. The United Nations is warning of multiple famines this year. Russia denies responsibility for the food crisis and blames Western sanctions for slowing exports, and it blames Ukraine for the mines. The Ukraine president's office has previously said that 17 ships are docked waiting departure on the Black Sea, with almost 600,000 tons of cargo, most of it grain. As Matthew Lauer turned off Reuters, the first grain shipment since February left Ukraine's Black Sea port today. The International Rescue Committee welcomes the news, but Marisha Zapasnik, the IRC country director for Ukraine, says the blockade should never have happened in the first place. Zapasnik tells VOA's Carol Van Dam she hopes additional shipments will soon be arriving in East Africa, where she says people are dying from hunger. These grain blockages have greatly contributed to the growing global hunger crisis, especially in East Africa, and that's where we're hoping that the shipments will soon arrive. 
countries in East Africa rely on Russia and Ukraine for over 84 percent of their wheat imports. And, you know, in Somalia, the country relies 92 percent on this source of grain. So to give you an idea of the scale of the need there, in just one of International Rescue Committee's nutrition clinics in Mogadishu in Somalia, from April to May of this year, the IRC has seen a 265% increase in children under the age of five that are suffering from severe malnutrition. And that's just from April to May. Our teams on the ground report that people have already started starving and really the window to prevent mass deaths is rapidly closing. Who are the people that are dying of hunger in East Africa? And and are the deaths a result in part, would you say, of this blockade? Yes, definitely as a result of this blockade. Like I said, it's 92% reliance on this source of grade. And as in cases of malnutrition across the world, it's predominantly children that are hit the hardest and then vulnerable people in the community. That's Marisha Zapasnik, the IRC country director for Ukraine, she was speaking with my colleague, Carol Van Dam from Odessa. Members of Tanzania's ruling party of the revolution are among political politicians from six African countries who attended the first session of a Chinese Communist Party training school held recently. Critics say the party-to-party training helps China establish closer ties with Africa's ruling elite and undermines African democracy by promoting Beijing's one-party government model. Charles Kombe reports from Kibaha, Tanzania. The Emolimu Julius Nyerere Leadership School was opened in February. Located in Kiba near Dar es Salaam, the school was built with 40 million US dollars from the Communist Party of China. It was co-funded by the ruling parties of Tanzania, South Africa, Mozambique, Angola, Namibia and Zimbabwe. School officials say the classes provide a platform for China to enhance exchanges and build a party-to-party diplomacy. Marcelina Chijora is the principal at the Julius Nyerere Leadership School. Chijora says the relationship between China and the school is in funding for buildings and to run the school. But she says she sees another relationship as well. During the first training, she says the Chinese taught students what is happening in China. She asked that they were taught what China did to bring about changes. China has been hosting training classes and exchanges in Africa for decades, as far back as the 1950s. But over the past decade, the events have grown both in number and profile. Analyst Gulak Ningo says the new school advances the Chinese Communist Party's model for ruling a country and promotes the party's ideological allies. He says Tanzania is among the countries where liberation parties with socialist ideology continue to remain in power. This basically helps China and other countries that still believe in the one-party system. Song Ingo asks, China is ensuring that the leaders who come to the school continue to believe in socialist politics. Ningo says the training will present problems for activists who want to see their countries become or remain more democratic. Charles Kombe, for Viewing News in Kibaha, Tanzania. In other news, a group of top climate scientists say the world needs to think about the ultimate climate catastrophe, human extinction, 
and how possible it is. They are calling on the world's main climate science body to look at the ultimate climate catastrophes, no matter how remotely unlikely they are. They say the worst of the worst case scenarios are being ignored. The scientists say they are not likely to happen, but need to be studied so we can be sure. It's a smart risk management to know why remotely possible the very worst is, they say, so the world can better avoid it. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You're listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedorfo in Washington. Social media users in Turkey could face up to three years in jail for posting what authorities consider to be disinformation under proposed legislation. The move has prompted protests with critics accusing the government of seeking to silence the last platforms that Turkish citizens have for venting their grievances. Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul. Journalists protest proposed social media legislation they say threatens to criminalize independent reporting. BNET is one of Turkey's oldest independent news websites. Here, there is alarm over the new legislation, especially the proposed new crime of publishing fake news or disinformation, as defined by the Turkish authorities. Hikmet Adal is a social media journalist at BNET. He says, I can go to prison just for reporting news if this new law passes in Parliament. I can be sentenced to one to three years in prison. This will cause fear in journalists and can cause them to apply more self-censorship in their reporting. With mainstream media mainly under government control, a large and vibrant independent media has developed on the internet, to the point that its ratings match those of traditional mainstream media. Some see the proposed social media law as a government reaction to that success. Fusun Nebil is a technology consultant in Istanbul. She says they are using this in order to block everything. Well, I mean by everything, anything that is oppositional. The law aims to silence any oppositional voice. This is why they are trying to introduce this disinformation law. In the proposed legislation, anyone posting or reposting what is defined by authorities as disinformation faces up to three years in prison. Social media platforms like YouTube and Twitter, which have offices in Turkey, under the proposed law will be obliged to reveal the identities of anyone who's under investigation. The proposed legislation comes as presidential elections loom next year. The Turkish government says legislation controlling social media is no different from laws already in place in Europe that seeks to protect the public rather than censoring dissent. But rights groups dismiss any comparison to Europe's laws. Dorian Jones of VOA News, Istanbul. Thank you, Dorian. Critics of Australia's plan to recognize indigenous people in the country's constitution says it risks diverting attention from serious social problems in First Nation communities. From Sydney Field Mercer reports. The recently elected centre-left government in Canberra wants to hold a referendum to change the constitution to recognise the country's original inhabitants. Australia has an indigenous history going back 65,000 years. The continent was settled by the British in 1788 and was initially a prison colony. Ever since, indigenous leaders have sought recognition for injustices, 
including mass killings, dispossession of customary lands, and forced assimilation. There is, however, disagreement about the benefits of a proposed referendum. Some critics have argued that constitutional recognition would simply be symbolic and wouldn't address deep-seated issues. Senator Jacinta Price, an indigenous politician, said the plan was dangerous because of its lack of detail. She told Australian television that the referendum was being driven by elites with little regard for impoverished communities. First Nation Australians suffered disproportionately high rates of poverty, imprisonment, domestic violence and unemployment. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. This is Science in a Minute. Soon after COVID-19 was declared a global pandemic in March 2020, researchers set out to determine the source of the virus that causes the disease. The SARS coronavirus 2 was first detected in Wuhan City, China, and was initially linked to living animals being sold at a local market. As the pandemic worsened, conspiracy theories of its origin spread in the media and on the Internet. Among them was one that suggested the virus may have been weaponized and leaked from the nearby Wuhan Institute of Virology. Two new studies, one from the Scripps Research Institute and the other from the University of Arizona, suggest that the pandemic started as first thought at Wuhan's Wanan Seafood Market. They also propose the virus wasn't leaked from a laboratory or by any of the other scenarios. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday, join us as we put the latest developments into a global context with stories, interviews, and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. And to all our VOA listeners, please note we have moved our programs to a new website, voaafrica.com. From VOANews.com, there you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on VOAAfrica.com and thanks for listening. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, Thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I am Chinarofo in Washington. Have a wonderful day.
Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The United States is committed to responsibly managing its relationship with the People's Republic of China by leading with diplomacy and keeping open channels of communication. To further this goal, Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with his counterpart, PRC State Councilor Wang Yi, for five hours on the sidelines of the recent G20 conference in Bali. After the meeting, Secretary Blinken told reporters the two talked about regional and global issues in which both countries had stakes, including the Kremlin's unprovoked war against Ukraine and North Korea's nuclear program. They also discussed areas where more cooperation between the PRC and the United States should be possible. The climate crisis, food security, global health and counter-narcotics. The two leaders discussed areas of disagreement as well, said Secretary Blinken, including Beijing's increasingly provocative rhetoric and activity toward Taiwan, the PRC's repression of freedom in Hong Kong, forced labor, the treatment of ethnic and religious minorities in Tibet, and genocide in Xinjiang. Secretary Blinken also said he shared with State Councilor Wang the United States' concern over the PRC's alignment with Russia, despite the Kremlin's brutal war of choice against Ukraine. What you hear from Beijing is that it claims to be neutral, he declared. It's pretty hard to be neutral when it comes to this aggression. There is a clear aggressor. There is a clear victim. There is a clear challenge not only to the lives and livelihoods of people in Ukraine, but there is a challenge to the international order that China and the United States as permanent members of the Security Council are supposed to uphold. Secretary Blinken noted that in any case, the PRC's actions belie its claim to neutrality. Beijing and Moscow announced their no-limits partnership as Russia was amassing troops on Ukraine's border. In June, President Xi reaffirmed that he stands by that decision. In addition, Beijing continues to support Russia at the United Nations and other international organizations, and Beijing echoes and amplifies Russian propaganda around the world. Secretary Blinken categorized the meeting with State Councilor Wang as useful and constructive. He warned, however, this really is the moment where all have to stand up, as we heard country after country do in the G20, to condemn the Russian aggression. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government.